Hey, everyone. First things first. I want to wish you my best for health and safety and comfort and peace in all of the context that is right now. It is a really hard time. And uh, I swore that if I was going to say anything about what's going on right now, that I would avoid jargon and I would avoid scripting it to feel like yet another COVID-19 response. I just want to say that like you, I feel all, all of the things uh, I feel scared. I feel nervous. I feel um, unsettled, anxious. Um, I want you to know that I'm going to keep pushing out episodes of the show. I have uh, the way that this podcast works is I record episodes as I go in the year and I put them out as I can edit them. And so some of the conversations, many of the conversations you'll hear from No Such Thing podcast over the next few weeks are going to be ones that were recorded prior to COVID-19 emerging in our lives. Doesn't mean that I am tone deaf for sure. It does mean, though, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about whether or not to release those episodes in such a crazy time. And there's a part of me that feels like it's exactly what I should do. That if you're anything like me, you need to hear something and think things and wonder outside of this context of coronavirus. So that's what I'm going to do. My plan is to have some conversations over the next few months related to all of the things in our present landscape of learning that are related to all of what's going on. Obviously, lots of concern about virtual learning. There's interest in how Uh, districts and other organizations are ready to respond or not. There's lots of conversation about access and equity as it relates to solutions to uh, this current state. I want to talk about lots of those things. I also can't make it every conversation that I have. The difference between uh, this podcast and what you'll get from, um, you know, a, a podcast that's that comes from folks who All they do is professionally cover the news in your field is that I am, uh, this is not what I do for a living um, entirely. It's a part of what I do. And because like you, so much of what I do day to day is deal with how to help support and lead uh, and uh, parts of an organization through times like this. Um, It can't be all I'm talking about. And that's just a matter of mental health and what it's going to take to thrive moving forward. So it won't be every conversation, but it's going to be some of my conversations. And I hope I can cover lots of what you're interested in. And as always, I'm very open through my social media, if you want to get in touch and let me know what you're most interested in chatting about in these times, I, uh, 
I, this DJ takes requests, as I've said before. So with all of that said, and my heartfelt warmest regards to everyone listening to this episode, I am thrilled today to introduce a new friend of mine, Dan Meyer. Hey folks, this is Dan. Uh, I am a former math educator, uh, storyteller, someone who thinks that math should be taught more like the humanities and currently work at a tech company in San Francisco called Desmos. As many of you know, I've really been trying to pursue great thinkers in the space of math education, especially because in these times, I worry a lot about the jargon of STEM being not only a force for good in in many ways, but also um, what ways it might be diluting some of the things we need to pay really close attention to. And math is one of those things that comes to me constantly as the last letter in STEM and maybe the most overlooked. I worry anyway. Of course, it's not overlooked for the many who spend their time as uh, math educators and folks in the field who are consistently pushing on that problem of how do we evolve the subject of math and, and its instruction and make sure that we can remove the barriers to all kinds of um, things, including pathways into STEM careers for young people um, because of math. Um, math is one of the greatest barriers that keeps young people from graduating uh, with a K-12 diploma. And it's one of the things that as young people think about an identity in STEM scares them the most. And so I love to talk about it. Um, so I often ask friends uh, who are math educators, hey, who are the rock stars you're hearing about out there in the world? Has your district invited keynotes in? Are you uh, following blogs, etc.? And recently I bumped into a friend and neighbor who happens to be a math educator who said, you got to talk to this dude, Dan Meyer. And so uh, in my social media in the last week, uh, I have put out, if you want to check it out, a talk from Dan Meyer. And this goes way back to 2010. He did this TEDx that I just thought was absolutely outstanding. And it turns out lots of other people did too. And he spent a while um, sort of doing the circuit for districts talking about reforms to math education. Anyway, Dan is now uh, trying uh, to, to learn what he can learn and, and offer what he can in the space of ed tech. And you'll hear a little bit about the company that he's working with now. But I just find him to be such a refreshing perspective on the topic of math instruction. And we had a really fun conversation back about a month ago. With all of that, I hope you enjoy the episode. This is No Such Thing a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. So, Dan, uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'm hoping, um, I'm, I will, I'm going to admit to you right now that this is going to be um, part therapy for me. 
Um, you're, do it. Let's I'm, do it. I'm hoping you're going to explain to me why, um, why I spend a really long time as an adult um, thinking I'm not a math person, right? Uh, I've had, I am really interested in um, leveraging uh, to the extent that I can, the the platform of this show to have some conversations that help people understand, especially at this moment where um, we are sort of jargonizing STEM um, and being that math is, uh, you know, you really, you have STE if you don't have math. Um, I really want to have some uh, and, and have had some good conversation about um where we are with, with, uh, math education and, and where we're not like where, where we just really need to make some progress. And, um, so I want to start there. I want to, I want to talk about why I spent years thinking I'm not a math person. Um, that's, that's the therapy part, but I will tell you that the way you and I are connected is that I regularly will ask, uh, folks who I know who are math educators, um, I will say who, you know, who in your field are the people I should be watching for the most progressive ideas about mathematics education? And your name came up and that's how, uh, how we got connected. So, um, let's, let's start with my ugly, um, my ugly, uh, self-talk. Um, can you help me understand why I have spent all this time thinking, uh, I'm not a math person and, and, um, and am I alone? Is this a phenomenon that you have seen, uh, lots of, uh, uh, in your explorations around math education? It's true. You're the only person in the world who feels as though they uh, have been disenfranchised from mathematics. Um, Damn it. That's sad, but at least the problem is limited only to you. Uh, right. Let's talk about it. Yeah, let's let the healing begin. Uh, happy to be here with you folks and have this. Um, I, I would have brought a box of Kleenex had I known, you know, the, the, how much of this would be, you know, self-study for you. Um, Listen. But we'll, we'll make do. Um, I'm, I would I'm just out say, of tears. I'm out of tears. Okay. <laughs> you've cried. You've cried this one out already. Yes. Um, great. Let's just be totally upfront with you and the listeners right now that math is something that humans invented. Yes, there are um, certain implications of these rules and systems and names that we gave to quantities that exist um, in nature. That's absolutely true. But the vast majority of what we call mathematics are Rules made by humans for the benefit of other humans. Ideally, uh, those rules have also been invented to subjugate other humans throughout history and to put people in their place and to impoverish some communities and not others. I, I just want to like make the claim here um, that, that math is um, something that we made. It is, it is not the case that there is this resource out there in the world that is naturally occurring that somehow you have been excluded from uh, because you are not savvy enough or not resourceful enough to go out there and take advantage of this naturally occurring resource. Math was made by humans and sometimes humans inadvertently or advertently um, exclude other humans from participating and mm. enjoying mathematics. That's just number one. Okay. Um, and I'm going to just, I, I, I love, I'm a, I'm a former teacher. I work with teachers all the time. I love teachers. None of them were trying to 
exclude you. How do we define what it means to be mathematical? Um, and that definition for a very, very long time and continuing to this day is um, around questions that can be answered with right or wrong answers that are numerical, that are easily assessed as correct or incorrect, um, that emphasize certain forms of logical thinking um, that are not the only ways of being mathematical. Uh, I would just recommend that you and your listeners uh, tune into Rochelle Gutierrez, who's a professor in Illinois, um, and she talks about rehumanizing mathematics and need to look at need to look at um, expressions in math that aren't just calculating quickly and accurately um, with memorized formulas, but instead involve things like one's voice and vision and intuition and your body and, um, you know, community expressions. And so as, as an example of that, like a, to concretize this a little bit, uh, um, I might ask you a question. Like, for instance, um, you're somewhere at work right now. How long do you think it'll take you to get home today, like by car? Okay. And in, in minutes. And whatever your answer is, you just kind of keep that, like, that estimate in your head. And then I could ask you a question, um, like, what would be a, a number you know is, like, too high and too low? Like, so... Me, I'm like pretty far away from my home right now. It, it'll take me like maybe 20 minutes to get home, 25 minutes to get home through the Bay Area here. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I could say like, I know it won't be an hour and I know it won't be 10 minutes. Okay, great. Um, cool. Uh, what information is most important to help you? If, um, what would be most helpful uh, for you to know to have a more confident prediction? Think about that. And I might say things like, um, shoot, uh, are there going to be accidents? Will the speed be steady? Um, you know, well, I need to get gas, those sorts of things. And what we are doing needs to be, has been defined by some groups and needs to be more widely defined as mathematical. Um, eventually this might involve some kind of formula, um, or an algorithm that say Google maps uses to calculate and give a best estimate of when you'll arrive home. Um, but that, that, that op final operation, that final operation, like put the numbers into the formula and spit out a time that tends to be how we have defined mathematics to the exclusion of so many people, because effectively we're saying all this intuition you have, all this contextual knowledge you have, all parts of yourself that make you special, your knowledge, it's not necessary here. Thank you. What we need to know is, can you put a number into a formula and correctly perform some steps and get a number out? That's a, that's a little different from, yeah, how I experienced it in, um, in seventh grade algebra. Say more. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I think, I think that was seventh grade was really the moment. And, you know, I, I since have been around in this field for long enough to know that that's, that's the moment for a lot of students when they pick up this, I'm not a math person identity. And, um, you know, there was a right. teacher at the front of the classroom and, um, and she would, uh, walk through formula and, um, and then ask you to go home and use the formula in different ways on a, on a, what, you know, in the day we called a ditto. Um, you know, we had like a math worksheet and, um, and I would go home and, and it would be so, so far from a, a language that I naturally picked up in the way that it was being conveyed to me that uh, I'd feel so defeated coming back to class. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way that, um, that I reacted to that as a student was to kind of pull away from the subject matter because it felt like, um, 
just something I had no natural, in, in addition to it being presented in such a way that I couldn't even fathom a natural point of engagement around, like, why do I want to know what X is? Um, in addition to that, it felt like I just had no natural inclination, like these, these, um, the decoding and, and coding, um, was not a literacy that was coming or a, or a, um, yeah, a sort of a language that was coming naturally to me. And so, um, so, you know, it, it became, um, it became season D's and I, and I kind of skated by and then subsequently spent high school, um, really doing everything I could to, um, you know, avoid, uh, higher math. And I think a lot of, mm-hmm. of students end up doing that. Um, and here, the, the thing that really bugs me the most is that somewhere along the way, um, teachers started to tell, you know, educators and people in my life would say, well, you know, you're a creative person, you know, so that makes sense. You're more, um, and people would get the left versus right side of the brain wrong and say, you know, uh, you must be left-brained, which would actually be right-brained. Um, and the thing that really bugs me is that I think that what we um, know both historically and at present is is that uh, mathematics is actually a deeply, as you said, it was invented by humans. Um, it's a deeply creative field um, somewhere in the way that we are uh, conveying that to young people in particular, we're sort of losing that and we're siloing the sort of um, the competency and skill types in such a way that keeps a lot of young people from feeling like I can be an, uh, a mathematically driven artist. Um, you know, uh, I can, in fact, my skills with math will give me a better job, uh, a, a rather a, a better chance at, you know, a job in, um, if I want to be an animator or, um, lots of these things. So in fact, I think what it, what it did was to hurt my understanding of, um, of what, how I would eventually, um, get engaged with math. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was an early experience that just had a really lasting effect. And, um, now, flash forward to this moment where I've been in, in the field of education for almost 20 years. And, um, and you see data about, uh, truancy and, you know, keeping young people engaged in schools. It really is, um, algebra one that is a tipping point for a lot of young people, particularly young people in, um, that are learning in communities and schools that have just historically been, uh, under-resourced, uh, and, and where, uh, the community has, has been underrepresented in, in, uh, the, the world of math. And so, um, so yeah, flash forward to this moment and it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I may have faked it a little bit, uh, feeling like the only adult who has this, this experience, but I, I know now better, but I still, have the question of what we need to do to get there. So that's what I want to um, spend your time on is 
what are the steps forward? What do we what do we need to be thinking about as whether it's us as math, math educators or as a field of researchers and parents and folks who care about young people um, enjoying math and seeing it as part of their identity? What are some of the things we need to consider? Yeah, su- super fun question. Really important. I would I would just return to your sense as a kid. I suspect you wouldn't say lots of folks would not like, I'm just not naturally inclined towards reading or speaking. Like there's just, there's disciplines, there's other disciplines like reading and talking and jumping and whatever. We're yeah, like we're naturally inclined towards using our bodies or using our eyes or using our voice. Um, but somehow um, math is like, Oh, you're either you're, I can be not naturally inclined towards that. And it's important for us, I think as, as educators and people who support educators to understand that everyone is, is biologically, naturally inclined towards mathematical thinking um, in the same way that little kids, you know, they, they are developing their ideas about literacy, words, language outside of school before they enter preschool or kindergarten. They have like a, 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 a enormous language and ability of language in the same way. They have lots of ideas about number and shape quantity. Um, those kinds of systems are coming into focus for them. And what we do in math more than any other discipline, I think, to say to kids implicitly, you've got nothing to offer us here until we tell you what that thing is. Mm. Uh, yet, you got nothing of value to bring to the table here um, as you start your formal learning. Um, your value will come when you repeat the things that I offer you that I say are valuable, which is just not how it goes in a lot of, you know, literature and literacy instruction. Like we're always asking students, you know, what do you think about this? Um, What's this mean to you? What are your ideas about this? Mm -hmm. In ways that I don't want to say are are universal, but are oftentimes feel very humanizing for students. I, I, and my ideas are cared about. I think therefore I am. When you care about my thoughts, you communicate that you care about me. So number one is to agree as educators that these kids, they know stuff. They know stuff um, before you open your mouth on day one of this class, that they know the ideas of your class in an informal, undirected, um, you know, yeah, an informal way, but they know stuff. And it is the teacher's obligation to surface those ideas. This This is stipulation number two. The teacher's obligation is to surface those early ideas celebrate them and build on them. Those are two very distinct steps there. Like, so what do you know about number and quantity? Okay, I'm going to um, help you put some names to that, some words to that early learning. I'm going to celebrate it too. I love what you're doing there. What we did at Desmos, we have this activity called Polygraph goes one of two ways. One direction uh, communicates to students that, hey, value is only uh, expressed through how well you reproduce the, the math of other people. And the other says, hey, your value is what you, what you have brought to the table is valuable to all of us right now before I tell you anything. So what happens is that the teachers will sometimes, students, um, here's 10 words about parabolas, this new shape to you, uh, you know, line of symmetry, vertex, concave up, concave down. I'm going to watch you folks play this game and give you points based on how many of those words I see you use. Mm-hmm. And you can, do you feel communicated here? Um, to the student, like your value is in walking down a path that someone has already walked. The other way this goes is the teacher communicates to the students a profound interest in them and what they bring to the table from their home language or culture or images or metaphors that are locked up in their head for what a parabola is. Teacher says, folks, I'm going to give you 10 minutes 
to try to play this game successfully. It's going to be tough. These are new shapes for us, but I'm so curious what words you will use. And so students use words, and we see this all the time. They use words like, uh, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a smiley face. It's an emo face. It's, it's wide. It's um, a hill. It's a mountain. It's a valley. Mm. And they are, they're drawing on images they have locked up in their head, trying to connect this new thing to things they already know. And the teacher communicates all this sincere interest and then says, okay, folks, this was hard, right? Um, pauses the game. This was challenging. Mathematicians have developed a kind of language to help um, to help us describe this new kind of shape. I'm gonna offer you folks some language that uh, mathematicians have devised. So for instance, you folks said it's, um, it's a smiley face. They might say that this is concave up. And so I'm connecting um, uh, student language to the formal language, um, which does two. One, students feel awesome about the contributions, and two, by making that connection between old and new knowledge, um, I, as the teacher, strengthen both. And then turn them back into the game to play it um, and telling them can use either kind of, of language, but here's language we all now have. Is this concave up, concave down, line of symmetry, vertex, intercepts, that kind of thing. Um, and students then experience math not as a tool to oppress them or give them bad grades or get them in trouble with their parents, but rather something that is power for them. Like this this more complex language, they experience that as oh, this is powerful for me. It helps mm. us accomplish our goal. So that's just me offering an, one example in concrete terms of two the same experience gone two ways, one which uh, uh, contributes to students feeling kind of worthless in math class and other that, that helps to humanize them and take uh, and, and you know, celebrate what they bring to the table at the start of class. Do you, you mention um, you mention a few items in that example that I think would fall into the category of, uh, you know, we're talking a lot as a field right now about culturally responsive practices Um. I'm curious how relevant do you feel culturally responsive practices and and pedagogy is um, in the field of of math education? Yeah, I think enormously, and I'm so glad to see attention, uh, growing attention um, to what is an an old body of work. Like there's been a lot of work on culturally responsive pedagogy um, and it has a a new kind of relevance and that's really exciting. Um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. I'm a learner along with um, many of you, much of your audience, I'm sure, especially the uh, white educators Um, among us. I, in reading Zaretta Hammond's book, um, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, I found it really interesting, her emphasis or her um, highlighting data about cultures that are either individualistic or collectivistic, like they develop their cultures around ideas about you know, uh, collective so- social um, social uh, communication versus individualistic kind of work um, and how a lot of our educators come from individualistic cultures, often Western European, yeah. um, and how, how that can influence the experience students have in math class. Um, where my culture, my upbringing might um, direct me to offer students experiences where they, by themselves, you know, repeat lots of examples of a formula I've put up on the board. And that's what we're trying to do is find ways to emphasize that we as a class are part of this collective experience, that we can all benefit from each other in, in communication. And our activities, like students will type in an answer to the computer. And rather than just like grade them, give them feedback as an individual, we just, we share that kind of answer with with a class, like we show you three random other student responses um, with the realization that students can learn from each other and it's a more culturally relevant pedagogy for lots of cultures. 
Um, yeah. Those are examples. That's great. I think that's such a good, a good, um, a good point and a great, uh, a great reference. I will most definitely put a link to Zaretta Hammond's work in, uh, in the show notes for the episode. Um, can we just shift quickly to ed tech? Um, I know you're, you're in that space currently and, and, um, I just, I, I want to go back to, uh, I hear a lot of, a lot of folks, the, the, I'll call them the, the, in my dayers, uh, you know, the folks who are, uh, you know, back in my day, we did this stuff without a calculator, um, and, you know, I hear that argument a lot that uh, it was really computers and calculators that that killed math instruction. What do you say to that? Is that just um, old thinking? Uh, you know, I don't I don't want to, you know, diminish the past too much of the folks who protect it. Um, I want to think about that critically. I would say that um, every generation of teachers has had some kind of technology that they fretted about, mm-hmm. even including paper chalk slates, the slide rule, yeah. like all of these, you know, technologies. And they, we just, we forget that these were at, in their day, very new technologies because um, they're old now, um, but they were fretted about by educators. And what happened eventually um, is that we, in some cases, changed the kinds of mathematics that we emphasize in schools. Like we know, like trig, trig tables used to be a thing in the back of the book where you know, now we have any calculator on your phone or even the cheapest uh, plastic calculators can tell you, you know, what, what the, the, the ratio is of the, of the sides of a triangle with a 42 degree angle in the past, you had to like look that up in a table. So we've like adjusted um, what we value based on new technologies of the day. Those changes should be undertaken thoughtfully and we should listen to educators of, uh, who are veteran um, who can tell us like what we might be missing or losing by making those changes, but we should, be willing to make some bold changes. I haven't, I, I'll be honest. And I haven't heard people say it all went downhill after the slate tablet. Uh, yeah. I mean, that happened, that, that was, that <laughs> happened before you were born. That's uh, you would not have heard that. Right. Oh yes. Right. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that this, st- like, what do you make of STEM, right? As a, uh, as a, as a piece of, uh, edu edu jargon. Um, does math belong? Uh, you know, like do these things belong together? Um, do they belong? T- the second question is, do they belong together as an acronym? Um, I think I probably can guess your answer in terms of do they belong together. But but is it helping us um, to be in this mindset of uh, STEM and you know all things? Uh, if if uh, if it's not STEM, you're, you know, it, it's without value. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's definitely a signifier of status. Like you, you, we did not hear, for instance, President Obama, Obama you know, give the State of the Union and declare that there would be like 10,000 new humanities educators. Like there's, there's, right. there's not, there, there is not the same cachet for the humanities as there is for Anything that we can fit under the umbrella called STEM, uh, STEAM does its yeah. best to kind of you know you know you know get art in there, um, but I think it, that has failed to take up for a lot of reasons we talked about about like what people value um, in the world. I would I would say this I would say this that um, there is a package of skills, math included, that can be very valuable 
for people's lives and well-being. Um, they're flourishing. Um, on this, but on the same token, like people who have math skills but lack uh, an appreciation of social structures and the context in which their math happens, um, who don't have an appreciation of the humanities, those people wind up cratering the global economy. Like those people wind up mm. devising algorithms that, um, you know, that that predictively police the bodies of black and brown people much more than white people. Like w- without both, um, we, we've seen just way too many destructive uh, implications of this emphasis on STEM absent humanities to just to to um, to be uncritical of it. Like we should critique the value that is put on STEM absent humanities because a lot of a lot of negative uh, ramifications occur. Uh, with that single-minded uh, uh, emphasis, you know what's really interesting is um, I think you. I think you. This is the second conversation I've had on this show that brought up the relevance of the humanities in um, thinking about the future of the workforce as it relates to all of this STEM um, obsessing we're doing, and um, and I believe the last time it came up was actually with math educators. Um, I, I made the joke that maybe we should call it stem. It's like a kind of got like a Yiddish touch to it. Um, or I got you. I like it. I like it. Um, but, uh, but isn't that interesting that, uh, it's actually our math educators, um, you know, our N is, uh, two maybe, uh, but, um, but uh, that my recent examples of folks who are talking about uh, our need to make sure that we're embracing humanities are are actually math educators, which I think is the opposite of what a lot of people's people guess about, um, you know, what the perspective of math educators is. Um, it's interesting in part because you're making this really important connection. Um, one of the things that comes up in cu- computer science constantly lately in in my little bubble is um is cs and ethics um and you really just just kind of hit that right on the nose there um and i i wonder the extent to which you feel like um there's a future for computer science where where math and humanities which actually are um the kind of oldest versions or, or ways that we've, we've uh, kind of canonized the subjects um, where, where there's a, a future for computer science that is actually a, a better mashup of those two of, of math and the humanities. Um, do you think about that at all? Yeah. I mean, it's this, I, I, I package it in the same question that you just asked, like what, how do we, I don't know, how do we create, well-rounded people, whether like if you're a humanities edu- if you're a, hu- uh, a student of the humanities to understand the power that yeah. algorithmic thinking can offer you um, in lots of ways, whether it's a, a journalist who knows how to carve up data sets using R or Python or whatever, uh, that there's power there. Um, and how do you help students who are feel more compulsively driven towards mathematics or computer science or other kinds of STEM dis- disciplines the value uh, and the need for education in humanities and social studies and to understand, you know, the context in which their work happens. Um, that's, that's work for both sets of educators to do uh, for like, for instance, yeah. journalism teachers to bring in like how to, how to work with large data sets and for, um, you know, for stats teachers who are working with data sets to, you know, 
help students understand not just like what the correlation is between, you know, uh, uh, wealth and race, but like why it is that way, what historically has happened mm. to lead it to become that way and not just focus on like, oh, calculate the correlation coefficient and report it and it's that. Um, I think that both sets of educators have a much more challenging job to do, um, increasingly challenging job to do in 2020. Yeah. We talk a lot about, about, uh, the integration of subjects and, and kind of co you know, there's, there's, um, and co-teaching and, and, uh, one of the things I aspire to do on this show is to, um, bring more educators on who can foreground some of the practices in, in, um, in, in teaching together and how I think, Generally, we don't have enough of a sense of how these things can look when we uh, think about them as integrated, um, as integrated, period. Um, and so uh, I welcome your ideas of, of folks you know who, who might want to have some of that conversation. Um, I, I do want to come back to the computer science for a second, though. And, and just do you have a take on um, – I talked to some people who, you know, are, are super – you know, now kind of boot campy computer science folks who are like, you don't need math for, you know, to be a programmer, like for the, you know, you're doing a lot of plugging and playing in, in uh, programming now. Um, do you have an opinion about the importance of math as it relates to the future of uh, computer science? Um, you know, like I, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I don't have a, a, a lot of programming experience, even I do some like light, light hacking, but, um, I, I, what I want to do is to identify the skills that are common to every discipline, humanities, math, CS, whatever, um, and to figure out how educators can em emphasize those in mutually supportive ways. And um, so I, I do know, for instance, that like in in CS and programming, you like you define variables like what what are the important elements of what I'm trying to do here? And then you create a model that like operates on those variables and gives an output. And that right there is a yeah. skill that if it isn't if it, it isn't called math, it certainly has corollaries in math class and should be emphasized in both. That exercise that you mm. and I did a second ago, uh, you know, about how long does it take you to get home, um, what variables are important, most important, least important, like that is fundamentally a similar kind of process as what we're describing in CS. Um, and so, yeah, do you need to there are aspects of math class, formal K-12 math class. You absolutely do not need it to be a successful engineer. Yeah. I'm <laughs> 100 percent true of that. Certain of that, and it seems like you are proof of that. Um, like factoring a cubic polynomial um, by hand, not going to help you really. Um, but there are those skills that are deeply mathematical, should be emphasized more often in math class, and will support um, students of every discipline, from humanities to CS and back again. I think that's brilliant. Two two last questions. I want to I want to respect your time. Uh, I know you have uh, we you know, everybody has limited, limited times in a, in a day. And, um, so, so I do want to ask you about ed tech right now. You're, um, you're taking what you know about the practice of, um, math education and, and you're working for an ed tech group, um, that, uh, you know, Demos sounds like you're doing some, some pretty great work. Um, tell me, tell me what, hope you have for what you think ed tech can start to realize and what are your, what are the points you're still skeptical on? And the reason I say still is because I've, 
done a fair amount of, uh, you know, of my, my homework on you. And I've, I've heard you say that you question whether or not, um, ed tech sort of gets it about math education T- tell me about that, but also tell me, you know, about your recent experiences. Are you feeling like there's, there's hope and are we learning more about what it can and can't do? Yeah. I mean, great question. It really central to my current passions, enthusiasm and vocation. Um, I'll say a couple things. One is, um, we fundamentally need to figure out what computers are good for in math class and other classes. And um, a lot of people that came through in the last decade said, here's what computers are good at. They're good at um, grading student answers and giving students the next question, all without involving Mm -hmm. a human in the mix. So there's multiple choice questions. And then we'll tell you, we we know what you know based on that. And given our conversation, uh, you and me, Mark, at the start where we talked about like all, the, all this like fuzzy, informal, beautiful, valuable, uh, life-affirming early knowledge that students have about math. You can yeah. see how in that kind of uh, paradigm of, you know, auto-graded multiple choice questions, students are not affirm students' knowledge is not being built on or celebrated in that model. Um, and, and furthermore, it's like the premise was, if, if, it, if it wasn't get rid of teachers, and no one will say that they wanted to do that, um, if that wasn't the premise, the premise seems to be teachers, we will use technology to make your job easier. We will ask the questions, mm-hmm. we will assess them, um, we will assign students the next thing. And we're, yeah. the the ethos that I am trying to cultivate at the company where I work, Desmos, um, is very different. It is that computers are good for a different thing. They are good for connecting and creating. They offer you and me, adults, tools for creation, um, varied kinds of creations. And they allow us to connect to each other, as we are right now, with our, our interesting creations and learn from each other's creations. And so everything we do starts from that premise and we ask ourselves, how are we helping students create mathematically, not just create numbers and multiple choice answers, but create sketches and text responses and early ideas and descriptions of parabolas. And then how do we help students connect those to each other in productive ways? And that, that mm. other uh, idea that we combat is that not that we want to make teachers' lives easier. We are not trying to make teachers' jobs easier. Fundamentally, that is not our goal. Our goal is to make teachers more powerful. So we give teachers tools. We think very carefully, uh, my team of former teachers and I, about what is the job of a teacher? What are teachers good at that computers are not good at? And how can we make teachers more powerful in that particular work? And that work for us is, as will not surprise you, um, helping teachers find the value in early student thinking to celebrate it and build on it. So we have this, our activities have these dashboards where we don't touch assessment. Like we are not going to try to interpret student written work and we know what the student knows and doesn't know. We put that in front of teachers in comprehensible ways. We empower teachers with tools to help them select interesting student work and have conversations about it with the class. Again, creation and connection. So that's some of the work we're doing. It's, it's, I, I feel like it's not arrogant to say it's just very different from the field. The field does not do what we're doing. And we're really excited about the uptake of that work. We've just announced um, our complete middle school curriculum is going into pilot this next year. And it's all built around these premises. Um, and yeah, the uptake has been exciting. It's something different. And um, uh, I think people feel affirmed. They feel like their early ideas are affirmed. And by, by extension, they themselves are affirmed in this work. It's led to a lot of uh, fun opportunities so far. Is there a, um, it, so, so, uh, Desmos is a, is a for-profit, um, company, right? Correct. And is there a reason that you guys are starting with middle school? 
Um, yeah, I mean, it has to do with, I think, a couple things. One, my team's expertise has been in middle school math instruction. Two, the standards yeah. uh, that middle school is built around, the Common Core State Standards in many states, uh, is a really beautiful, coherent story of mathematics, of a few large ideas that repeat and rhyme and build and grow throughout three grades in ways that the high school standards haven't quite coalesced around. And the, um, we're hesitant, we're being careful about early grades because we don't know how much we think um, those students would benefit from computers in their education. Middle school felt like a sweet spot. There. Interesting. Nice. I, I figured maybe it was because of my story in seventh grade algebra it, and you were just I hoping. didn't want to like embarrass you uh, or flatter you too much. But <laughs> since you mentioned it, that really was, that was it. Yes. <laughs> okay. So here's how I wanted to end. You tell me if, if you're up for it. Um, I want you to help me like, let's role play a little bit. And um, I had, as a joke in my introductory email to you, I asked um, how many pixels in an average Pixar movie? Cause I was trying to come up with a good yep. math question, but, but um, let's, let's massage that example. And um, if, if you were working with me and my seventh grade self, um, let's pretend I came up with that question on my own. Um, what would be, the process by which we, you help me discover the answer to this and, and what can I learn along the way? Yeah. Oh, wow. That question, um, went from your email to our interview and took a really fun turn there. Yeah. So this right here is, um, an opportunity for us to humanize both you and mathematics. So I'd like to, to sh not to humanize you, you are a human, um, but for me to say to you implicitly or explicitly, like I see the value of your brain and your thoughts um, and then to build on this. Yeah. So like for me, what I might say to you is like, first, whoa, that question blows my mind. I got to sit here. Give me just like 10 seconds of silence to think about your question and whether or not my mind is truly blown. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm using this moment to like get ahead of our process a little bit, but I just want to communicate to you like how many times, how many times per day are math students asked questions by their teachers versus how many times they get to ask questions themselves and be seen as authors of questions, right. the authors of math curiosity. Uh, it's, it's, this is so rare. I feel so much smarter when you appreciate yes. my question. And I, that sounds like I'm, I'm being funny, but, but no, I'm really not. It like, it huge. feels good to hear positive yes, feedback. Exactly. So first I just want to like throw love on that question. Second, I'm like, okay, I, I want to admit my ignorance. I don't know. I'm so curious about it though. So I'm like trying to position you and me, like, like flatten the status imbalance between you and me um, as math teacher and learner. We're both math learners. I don't know. Um, and so, if, so that's, that's one move next. And I would then ask you to apply your intuition. So like, okay, I don't want, like, I don't, I'm really curious what you would say, Mark, about this. Um, I, I'm not, I don't want you to like figure out, like, like estimate an exact answer, like 237 billion, 499 million, 233,457. Uh, like that's just not, not a useful right. estimate, but like, I just want to know like right. how many, how many zeros do you think would be on this answer? Like, are we talking about trillions? Are we talking about millions? Are we talking about thousands? Just like get your estimate there. And then what you might do is like sit there and say, gosh, I don't know. So I'd, I could ask you then next or regardless, okay, what's, what is a number of zeros on the end of answer you would know would be wrong? When we got to the end of it, you would know like, no, 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 that was too high. Something went wrong or that was too low. 
And me, I would say right. like a hundred thousands, like way too low. And I would say probably a one followed by 30 zeros is too high, whatever that is. So like we're again, broadening what the definition of mathematics is. Math is not just taking a formula for the number of pixels in a Pixar movie and then plugging numbers yeah. in and getting an answer out that is quick and correct. It's saying, what does a wrong answer look like? That is mathematics. Right. I'm trying to make room for you in mathematics. Um, or rather, math has room for you. It always did. I'm trying to like, uh, you know, get rid of barriers that I and other folks have put in the way of your inclusion. Help yeah, me recognize that. And yeah. then ask you, here's the, the question is tougher. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Let's brainstorm here. What information would be helpful to know? Like, I know nothing about like a lot of what's important here. Like, but what information if we had, it would help us get an answer here. And you and I would. Okay. So um, what do you think? Yeah, I have like, I have, well, I've thought a little bit about this and I do have, like, there was a reason for my question, which was, I was trying to think of what my seventh grade self would ask you. I was super, in, I went to film school as a kid. I was super into movies. Um, there we you know, go. I was, a, I was uh, I, this was part of me being cast off as a uh, creative kid. It was like, I, I fully embraced that. Um, so I might have asked this question as a seventh grader. And um, so I'll I'll pull from some of that knowledge. I think I'd need to know, number one, how many pixels in a frame. Mm. Um, that would be really key. And then the other one is I I sh- I need to know um, I need to know how many frames per the frame second. rate. Yeah. Uh-huh. If, if I could know the frame rate and the pixels per frame, mm-hmm. um, then I could go after. You know, I could say over the last 10 years, I could average out um, the total time of all the Pixar movies and probably come up with something pretty, pretty good. Right. And then here's the cool part. All right. Is that we take that answer. Like, I'm, I'm not going to poke holes at this at this moment. I want to get that answer and say then like, OK, awesome. Did this fit between the numbers we said were too high and too low? Like call back to that early knowledge you had and endow it with even more value. And then, OK, it does. Now, tell me a story about how this might be wrong. How, what are we not thinking about here? And um, that then opens up the door for more kinds of, you know, thinking that relies on your knowledge as a creative, as a person who creates uh, in, in the movie medium. Like, for instance, like, I don't know, does, does Toy Story 1 and Toy Story 4, do they have the same frame rate, frame rate uh, same number of pixels? Like, is it 4K it. a thing now? You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, yes. so then it's like, oh, we put value on this early number you came up with, and then we just like blow our minds together about how much more complex the question is that you, that you, not me, that you asked. I am so you're, smart. You're so, so smart. smart. That's the thing, man. Okay, check it out. I got. <laughs> I'm so mad. I got little smart. kids, and I, my mind is blown all the time about like the the like they looked at an artichoke and they were like, "That's a pine cone." And I'm like, whoa, that's so smart. An artichoke looks like a pine cone for all these reasons. Also, it's not a pine cone. Here's some ways that it's different. <laughs> but that is so amazing. <laughs> I find it so easy to like see the smart in people who are related to me, who look like me, who are smart in ways that I feel smart. And somehow, by the time that you're in math class in seventh grade, like, I, as your teacher, my impulse to see you as smart is down to almost nothing. Like you are smart if you are me, if you redo, if you reproduce my thinking. I just, I got to, I'm thinking so much about that right now. Like how to preserve, comply, how to preserve. Yeah. It becomes a matter of compliance, which, you know, it has so many issues. Um, Anyway. Yeah. Fun experience. 
This this kicked ass. I have to say, I am I am smiling ear to ear right now, in part, in part because I I think you're you're um you're the the energy with which you um you're approaching the answer to the question is is obviously pretty contagious and um but part of it is just you know it feels great you know like we're we're talking about ideas and um and man I remember sitting around with um. I have, I have all older brothers and I remember sitting around with, um, one of them in particular had, you know, a a group of his, um, friends who I thought were so smart and, and they'd get, get together. And I remember, um, them batting around, uh, how you could like, whether it was possible in physics for the night rider to come out of the truck backwards and then, um, and then race off the way it does without, mm. um, without actually stopping. And, um, these were the kinds of questions that, you know, had my math class been built around that, uh, and, and my questions, uh, man, maybe, maybe, maybe it all, uh, would be different. Um, offline, I'm going to ask you, you know, uh, what, what's the precedent for, um, I can hire you as an adult math coach. Maybe I can, I can re- revitalize my, my, uh, my love for math as an adult. Now it's never, never too late. Um, I, uh, Dan, this has been so much fun. I can't thank you enough for doing it. And, uh, and I hope I can have you back as, uh, as my as these conversations that revolve around uh, not just math, but also uh, we're talking about a lot of uh, pedagogy and practices that are extremely powerful and important at this moment in time. Uh, they have always been, but especially in this moment, as as um, you know, we're thinking about the stakes of improving education right now, which I would argue have never been. Uh, higher. So um, anyway, I, I can't thank you enough for the energy you bring to the work uh, for your time this hour and and uh, and all you do. And I I, uh, I hope you'll make your way back uh, to the show. It's been a pleasure. Can't thank you enough. I am also going to link uh, in the show notes to this episode to uh, the fantastic TEDx talk that you have done uh, in your past. And uh, I will include the um any resources you send my way, I will offer them to the audience and uh, no doubt they will be appreciated. Thanks again, Dan. Fantastic. Take care now. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.